once again, I have the extreme uh, covet to be invited to uh, speak to this uh, very special group. And um, I guess uh, tissue above has become uh, our thing. So uh, hopefully we can make it uh, meaningful. When we just pause and reflect on the just absolute enormity of Jewish suffering, both past and present, it's just something that's incredibly difficult to bear. And we know that Hazal teach us that the personal suffering is also directly linked to Tisha B'Av and the loss of the Shekinah. And even though, of course, during the Beis HaMikdash times, there was also suffering, it had a totally different quality. There was a much deeper sense of its meaning and purpose. And today, we have these huge challenges, and we're often just uh, lost in, in, in Hastara, in absolute darkness. We, we have no idea why we have it, what's happening, where, where we're going with that even. And very sadly, you know, even people seem great on the outside and everything seems to be going well. You just scratch the surface a tiny bit and somewhere either themselves or somebody really near and dear to them is suffering with their health, finances, spiritual issues. Uh, and of course, what I deal with the most is psychological. I just recently did a, a, a community event somewhere, a large event, and, you know, to try to bring home the point of how many people are struggling with mental health issues, instead of quoting stats, which also just leads to immediate defensiveness. I just asked by raise of hands, if people could be authentic and honest and vulnerable enough to say whether, how many of them, whether they themselves, somebody in their immediate family or somebody in their extended family was suffering with a mental health challenge, diagnosed or undiagnosed. And pretty much every individual in the crowd of hundreds raised their hand. So the suffering is, is enormous. And part of that might relate to the dissociation we see, both regarding our present condition, you know, we just disconnect, keep ourselves busy, distracted, and let alone the past horrors of Kalaisro's history. So I've been really grappling with trying to make sense of this for myself is how do we incorporate, how do we deal with these massive traumas and suffering? And yet, seemingly from the Torah, there's almost no victimization there. There's almost no blame given to the Babylonians, the Romans, the Nazis, or any of our other tormentors. Of course, we believe firmly they already got their just desserts on this world and, and the Oilema Emes will be forever, but that's not the focus of the Torah at all. So something unbelievable happens here. We go through all of this pain and suffering and torment. We get in touch with it, the enormity of it, and then we come to a place of deep introspection and ultimately personal and collective responsibility. It already happens in Eitha. It starts the opening parak with the destruction of Yushalayim. And it goes to questioning Hashem in, in ways that are almost hard to fathom. How can you do this stuff? How can you abandon us? How can you do this to your people? But then it quickly takes a turn harshly inward up to the point of despair where the Navi is saying he's almost at a loss. And then only almost at that breaking point, at the rock bottom, it gets turned into positive hope for the future by taking responsibility for ourselves. And already in the Navi and already last night in the Kino, we said, For our Averis, the sanctuary was destroyed. And for our violations, 
the base of Mikdash was burnt down. From a psychological perspective, how on earth are we supposed to accept this absolutely crushing responsibility that it's our collective and my individual sins and lack that lead to and perpetuate these karbanas? How is it humanly possible to acknowledge and experience such pain, bear it, accept responsibility and move forward? And this is just something that I've been grappling with for a long time. And there are a few caveats here. This is really not worked out in any way. I actually tried to resist speaking. Um, this is something I'm stumbling through at best in a clumsy fashion, trying to make sense of this. But Rabbi Shmimin felt it would be helpful for me to share some of that, my own personal struggle with this with others. So, and hopefully we'll, we'll work this out somewhat more together. Another caveat, this is absolutely not a message for other people. This is a self-introspective process for myself. And if in any way that could be helpful for others, that's great. But it's in no way a statement, let alone a criticism of any individual's experience or their journey. The philosophy of personal responsibility and a person's response to his experience is not for someone else to judge. As outsiders, we're there as support, unless somebody specifically asks us to go beyond that. There's a very good chance it's something like, like covet where it might be toxic for me to pursue that, but I have to give it to my friend. And similarly, the Chazanish in Amun Betochen says, for many of those, I have to take maximum responsibility for any lack in my relationships and my issues, but for my friend, I got to give him as much leeway as possible. And I believe the same thing is true for personal responsibility. For somebody else who's struggling in the midst of a struggle, we need to be there to, to give true empathy, support, not responsibility, hashkaf or muster. We have to be very careful about this because so many, instead of turning inward, we love to say, hey, you should be taking more personal responsibility. The Gemara and Baba Mitzia actually tells us that that is an iser of a nas dvarim. It learns it out from Eve's friends. That if a person is struggling, they're tormented, they have illness, bury a child, you can't speak to them like Eve's friends tell them and said, hey, certainly you did have virus. Otherwise, you'd not have suffered this misfortune. It's actually an iser in the tire. So this is all about an inward journey for myself. And maybe we can inspire other people to take an inward journey, but not for anybody else. It is also, though, important to know when I, when I empathize with the sufferer, I, I should never lose hope with them and in them. And it's possible in the most empathic way, help them restore a sense of their agency at whatever level they might be at, but without any judgment of their situation or of them. And in terms of judgment, well, there's anything life has taught me is that we really have no idea what someone else may be experiencing. Every day I meet with people on the surface, give off an impression they might look successful and powerful, but underneath their enormous struggle. And we can't judge another person at all. You have no idea if that person in front of you may be making the ultimate desira just to not end their lives, just to wake up in the morning. I recently had a pretty wild experience where a, a very hush of Rosh Yeshiva disclosed that he had lived with tremendous psychological torment, abusive situation, and he actually had significant suicidal ideation and actually the starting point of self-harm. 
he told me that as he was nicking his wrist and the blood was starting to come out, he made a decision not to kill himself. And that was a pivotal point in his life that then transformed to saying, okay, I got to make something different of myself. I can't stay in this tragedy. And from there, he ended up becoming a very, very prominent person. So we have no idea what the other person in front of us might be going through. It's just incredibly important when we talk about responsibility. That again, it's for ourselves, not for somebody else. But I'm going to share a little bit more about what has got me thinking about some of these issues more than ever before. So my own personal experiences, both the schools of therapy I studied, my own personal therapy, and the practice of therapy, for a long time, there was often a great deal of focus on the past. Not just the emotional pain, but really trying to understand the cause, not officially assigning blame, but doing a lot of recognizing and acknowledging the cause. And that has its place and might have been very helpful in minimizing certain toxic guilt and shame. And, and it might have a significant place. But I always sensed something was missing. There was this nagging voice of my consciousness that there was this strange implicit message that, yeah, you're messed up but it's not your fault, it's someone else's fault. I also had ongoing, these niggling doubts. Was this really the preferred method of the tire? But for many years, I just suppressed those voices. Some of the other factors that started to happen is I started to look more at the data in terms of schools of therapy, and the data did not demonstrate that the schools of thought which seemed to really focus more on the causes fared significantly better than those that didn't. So again, it was another nick in the armor of this thing. And what's come up most recently is something that's really jarring. We seemingly are witnessing a huge victimhood movement, particularly in the psychological community and on the political left, You know, where, where, where everybody is now a victim of power, patriarchy, the capitalism, it's wild to think about that there are literally apology tours for entire communities. Everyone is a victim of society. They're even victims of their own biology. There are trigger warnings and safe spaces on campuses. They're pushing for compelled speech. These are very, very scary trends. And yet with all of this in the name of helping everybody who's a victim, there's worsening mental health throughout this entire process. So it's a really scary thing for me because I live and breathe the power of psychology. And psychology, like any incredibly powerful, force, incredibly powerful force, it can be used for enormous good and for bad. And psychology is often very involved in these kind of issues. Even with its very brief history, it has shared responsibility for quite egregious things in the name of kindness, compassion, and alleviating suffering, such as forced institutionalizations, sterilizations, and frontal lobotomies. And it's almost unimaginable for somebody who lived decades ago to think that today we live in an age where one's sexual orientation is considered absolutely etched in stone from birth, and any attempts to explore it are considered absolutely barbaric, while simultaneously being told that one's gender is completely a social construct. And when a child says they're uncomfortable with their gender, we should immediately offer them puberty blockers or surgery. So there are great dangers of course, but the greatest danger may be psychological determinism and victimhood. Revolva quoted his Rebbe Refutner 
who cautioned. He said that the last Kfira before the Mashiach would be clear in the theory. There's no free will. And sadly, there were and are many schools of psychology that subtly view humans as not having any free choice. We're just responding to our genes and environmental inputs. There are different schools of therapy and different therapists, but we might inadvertently emphasize things which can undermine a person's sense of agency. So we need to be very careful Today, it's very easy to label everyone as traumatized, but it feeds victimization. You're a nebuch, you're a mess, but it's not your fault. It's your parents, poverty, society. I, it was pretty eerie for me. Not long ago, I was on a panel with a number of colleagues. And one colleague who I have absolutely enormous respect for the therapeutic work that they do. We were on this panel and this person said, their definition for trauma is anything less than nurturing. And the audience broke out in applause. And that really lingered with me after. What was going on there? Why was everyone so happy to hear that? Especially, because this was a group for parents of struggling children. You would think that they'd be offended by this idea. But there was something so powerful about the idea that trauma is anything less than nurturing. It led me thinking a lot about that. It's something that sounds great initially. Wow, okay, I'm traumatized. I'm a victim. It gets me off easy. But just think about for a moment what we're doing actually to the word trauma and its definition. And that's what it means. Maybe more importantly, if, if something becomes a constant that absolutely everybody experiences, it loses any explanatory value. In science, something that's a constant just gets factored out. If everyone experiences it, it doesn't help me explain anything about why people fare so differently. But there's some great appeal to this idea. So I was very drawn to psychological trauma for many years. And in many circles, I'm considered a trauma expert and deal with traumatized people every day. But today it's become this popularized notion. It seems to be pulling people in, but yet things are heading in the wrong direction. On the flip side, a while back, I got strongly into the work of Jordan Peterson. Well, my opinion is an absolutely bold genius. And what's fascinating is uh, side by side with all this victimization going on, there's been an ascendancy to his message, a transformational message of personal responsibility rather than the victimhood to take on maximal responsibility. And in an unbelievable way for a psychologist, he's making the Bible characters more relevant. And I believe he's much more aligned with Viktor Frankl's message, which is a message that always seemed more aligned with the Torah. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist who lived through the Holocaust. And he famously wrote in his incredible book, Man's Search for Meaning. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Frankel concluded that even the worst suffering that a human being can experience, he can find meaning and hope. 
And it is her words, which are probably a quote from Nietzsche. It said, those who have a way, a why to live can bear with almost any how. If you have a why, a purpose, a meaning, you can deal with almost any of the situations you're in. So as a psychologist, I hope that my work actually helps expand a person's fear and free will. For the very narrow plane, you know, we call these the Benamitsarim, narrow straits. People come in, they're stuck in this narrow place. They can't really move. And the hope is that with treatment and healing, their sense of health and growth can actually emerge. And we want to provide them with greater sense of agency, excuse me, agency and free will, not a narrowing of it. But it's scary what's happening out there. So I've been trying to grapple with what I see. I've also been trying to look more properly at the Torah and deepen the appreciation of how it's the ultimate guide to reality and has ultimate relevance. Trying to integrate better the spiritual and psychological. And yes, Jordan Peterson helped push me to it. And it's been a strange thing in my career with many things that I've learned Chachma uh, Bagoyim has actually helped me go back into the Torah and try to see things differently. And I've been working on trying to attempt to see myself in every hero and villain in the Torah. It's not just stories, age-old ancient stories, but under what conditions would that bring out something in me? Under what conditions would I play out things the same way? I just, not to give a haskama just to everything Jordan says, because I think there's unbelievable contributions that he's made. But I do still think that he has a non-fully religious view. He's really grappling with evolution and not coming out clearly as a person who believes fully religiously in, in the truth of the Bible. And the religious views he does share do have a more Christian notion of suffering and original sin, rather than everything being for the ultimate good. That there isn't so, okay, there's so much suffering in the world, so we have to, you know, sort of bear the cross and carry our responsibility forward. But every single thing in this world is for good. It's the ultimate hatava. It is the call for human responsibility to help us get the ultimate benefit. And even if we need tikkun to give it to us on this world so we can have maximal benefit in the future for all of infinity. If time allows, maybe we'll touch on that a bit later. But we have to be careful because psychologically we're pulled to extreme. Victimization on one end, but denying the impact of psychological and emotional factors on the other. And that's really how I got started in the field. You know, too many messages of just pull yourself up by your bootstrap. You always have the fear of you're making excuses. At least you have this, that, or the other things. What are you fetching about? Other people have it worse. Those kinds of messages are false and very damaging. The Torah is absolute truth. And the truth is always much more nuanced than sophisticated. So just to begin more clearly with sort of defining victimhood. The research shows that people tend to see themselves as perpetual victims. This ongoing feeling that something's happening to me and it goes across our experiences and our relationships. And it become a central part of a person's identity. 
They have what in psychology we call an external locus of control. Life is happening to me. I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. It's fate, luck, the mercy of other people. And there are sort of four crucial components to people who, who grapple with this victimhood mentality. And again, you can have more or less of each of these things. One is a constantly seeking recognition for victimhood. And they might seek that out from their friends, from the family, from their therapists. It often also comes with a moral elitism because they're suffering so much and their pain is valid, they can do no wrong, but others are unjust. They often struggle actually, even though they're dealing with their pain, but they often lack empathy for the pain and suffering of others. They're too wrapped up in their own situation. And lastly, they frequently ruminate about past victimizations. They're very busy with that past. And I think that's where there's a very delicate balance in the therapy arena. And it's crucial to note that the research shows that experiencing trauma and possessing a victimhood mindset are not totally related. Somebody can experience the worst traumas ever endured and take personal responsibility and vice versa. People can go through things that, again, we can't estimate other people's suffering. But for what we see, they didn't suffer as enormously and yet they developed this incredibly powerful victimhood mindset. Victimhood is really powerful. It's like a dopamine hit, it's like a drug. Feels awesome in the moment. You get to check out, you feel free. It cashes up your experience, but afterwards, very gradually, you're paying a steep price for lack of agency in your life. And victimhood goes along with blaming. So Brene Brown describes blame from the research as blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. And it has an inverse relationship with accountability. Meaning people who blame a lot seldom have the tenacity and grit to actually hold people accountable. So it's this paradoxical thing. You're sitting there blaming, but you're not doing the necessary work of holding yourself or others accountable. And I definitely struggle that a lot in terms of the blaming. You know, First thing in my head is I want to know immediately whose fault something is. And that's an incredibly powerful human experience to do that, to go to the blame. I think we deceive ourselves. We think if that if our parents or our upbringing was perfect, we wouldn't blame. But that's absolutely not true. It's something fundamental to the human experience. So literally, if we go to act one, scene one of human experience, no issues, of poor self-esteem or poor parenting, what happens out the gate? So Adam and Chava, day one of the world, According to some, it's Manish maybe in a few hours, this whole thing unfolds. They eat from the eight sadats. And then what happens? Hashem comes to them. He's rustling. So not to surprise them, give them a chance to come to their senses. And he says <clears throat> these famous words. Hashem calls out to Adam and he says, Ayeka, where are you? And we'll talk later, Ayaka, the same letters as Eicha. And Adam says, I heard 
your sounds in the garden, and I'm afraid because I was naked. So I hid from you. Hashem responds, who told you that you're naked? Did you eat from the tree which I told you not to eat from? That's the place. What's going to happen? So Adam says, immediately shifts to blame. The woman, and not just the woman, the woman you gave me, Hashem. She gave me the tree and I ate it. Hashem turns to Chava, giving her an opportunity. He turns to the woman. What did you do? She doesn't take responsibility either. The serpent duped me and I ate. Hashem gave Adam and Chava an opportunity to accept responsibility and fix things. But Adam just blamed God for Chava. Chava blamed the Nachash. And then we had unprecedented catastrophe and destruction. So things go from bad to worse in the human condition. And the next scene, we have Kain. Kain is a spiritual genius. He comes up with the idea of bringing a carbon to Hashem. But there's some darkness in there. At the same time, it's an amazing spiritual genius. There's darkness. Even though all of the produce of the world is his and it goes bad, he doesn't bring for the best to the Abish. There's something holding it back. So Hashem doesn't turn to his carbon, but rather to his brother Heva. And what happens? Kain becomes very angry. And his face falls. And Hashem again comes to give the human an opportunity. Hashem says to Kain, Lama Kharla, why are you distressed? Why is your face falling? Now, if we pause for a second and think about that, it seems like a very strange question for Hashem to ask. Why are you distressed? Why is your face falling? You just experienced the ultimate rejection. This wasn't a friend, a spouse, a mentor, an authority figure. God himself rejected his offering. And not just did it get rejected, Hashem told him, it was your fault it got rejected. You caused it. So it's the absolutely worst truth to bear. I'm rejected and it's 100% my fault. Lama Kharala? Lama Nafmu Pemeku? Why are you angry? My brother? His you took? I'm embarrassed? Look what happened to me? And it's on me. I believe that the Sforno over there gives us an indication of what foundation, what cushion, what attitude we need to be able to bear the responsibility of the Torah in a healthy way. So the Sforno, just a drop of text. I know everyone's allergic to text. He says the anger he felt was jealousy from his brother. The face falling, the boishish punim, that shame, that turning away, you can't make eye contact. Because Hashem said, I don't want you and what you offer. But then something wild occurred. Hashem's question the Sforno learns, Lama why are you angry? Why are you jealous? It says, 
He says, you have a problem with this? You think it was just willy-nilly, my will? It's unfair? Or it wasn't just? It's absolutely just. If we really understood things as absolutely just, we wouldn't get angry. But the next step is mind-boggling. Why are you ashamed? Why did your face fall? Sverno says, Whenever something that was done, a kilko, something you failed in, but it has a rectification, it has something you can fix it. In royal style, it is not worthwhile to be pained on the past. It's only worthwhile to put in your effort to find a resolution for the future. So a huge sin, a rejection from God, held absolutely responsible, and Hashem is telling him, that's not a reason for shame. Fix it up. Go forward. And he continues. If you fix yourself, you'll also be wanted and desired by me. And you'll experience the absolute you'll be totally lofty. And that'll be open to you, that whole channel. Then he does warn. But if you don't, then sin is crouching at the door. But even there, he says, after you sin, and after you're going down the path of darkness and evil, at the Tim boy, you can be the master of it. The Swarna says, unbelievable words. You can vanquish it with your Tselem Elohim, with the divine aspect of you. And actually, Shat that still needs a lot of work. He says, as Chazal say, Seemingly, the Svarno was saying there's some both element of my internal divinity that I can tap into to vanquish the Sahar. But there's also some element of it coming outside that Hashem is with me, and Hashem is helping me, and Hashem is grappling with the Sahar too, together with me. So I believe Hashem is giving time the keys to life and a bit of an answer to the questions we're plagued by. Hashem says, I'm absolutely okay with your humanness. Your struggle, the darkness in you that didn't offer me the choice of produce. I'm okay with you mis making mistakes and messing up. Even your willful failure. I don't even want you to dwell on that or get stuck there. Go forward and prove yourself. I'll accept you, forgive you, love you. I'll be there to help you lift yourself up and you'll soar. So I think it outlines for us the core ingredients necessary to respond to trauma, tragedy, and suffering. There are a deep sense of Hashem's infinite loving kindness, a total acceptance of the self and situation, that that's the structure for my life and growth, and Hashem's incalculable empathy and forgiveness. So Adam and Kain teach us, even if something 100% my fault, and Hashem, who's the structure of all reality and truths, says that, I can still accept that and move forward. So I make a kalachimer from there to the things that aren't related to my bad choices. My parents, my siblings, my yeshiva, my rabbi, and the teacher, society, culture. 
I certainly don't have to be busy with that. The only concern, what can I do to improve from the state that I'm in right now? So the call of Hashem, Ayeka, Hashem calls out to men, where are you? And the Medrash tells us that if you don't respond to that call, right, that leads to the Eicha. And across the spectrum, whether it's the Balatanya or Yosef Doiv Salavechik, that Ayeka is Hashem's perpetual call to every person. Where are you in the world? And if you answer that honestly and openly, then it's uplift. But if you don't, that's the path to Eicha, calamity, misfortune. So I believe that the answer to Ayeka is really what we call Makiris Makayim. I know my place. The answer, where are you? I'm here. I truly know myself, my situation, my place, physically, emotionally, societally, socially. Here's where I am. All the light and darkness I'm aware of. And here's what I'm working on. So understanding your vulnerability and appreciating it fully is crucial to growth because it's the only place you can actually grow from. Otherwise, you're not living your life, the life Hashem actually assigned to you. So I need to totally accept myself and my current position as the place Hashem wants me to work from. And I believe that's actually the basis of Amuna. That yes, I'm absolutely deeply flawed and need Hashem's help. But that's the entire reason I'm here. Because for Hashem to give maximal good requires the here, real choice. Real choice means there's a razor thin edge, the good and evil. As the Derech Hashem outlines. So given how lofty the Neshama is, and there needs to be real Bechir, not fake, has to be absolutely real, that requires enormous evil and pull towards the negative. If there's no real drive for evil, then good is meaningless. The rabbit is no more moral than the lion. The only place for real growth is at that Mekudus HaBechir. We are actually equally matched with your opponent. And we know this from everywhere else in our lives, whether it's video games, sports, business, everywhere in the world, when you go up a level, so do your opponents. And that's the representation of the spiritual too. We're going to constantly be, the greater we go, the darkness is going to follow for there to be choice. So the starting point is the acceptance of human condition as a total conflicted mess. And that's exactly where I'm supposed to go from. So given the external and internal forces of evil, brokenness, trauma, addiction. And I can't manage that on my own. The forces of darkness are hard to fathom. We talk about Esau as the Shoresh of Ra. Ra being Ra'ua, weakness, brokenness, fragmentation, not oneness. You're separate from yourself, others than Hashem. It can absolutely generate self-harm and ultimately suicide. Chazal <clears throat> even tell us that while on earth was going on, Asaf trying to jump out of the womb. What if you jump out of the womb, you're dead? It doesn't care. Evil is suicidal to get its aims. It'll pull you to the depths. So we need to appreciate the darkness within us to really be Makir Mekoyma and accepting responsibility that it's truly our footsteps, not somebody else's challenges, my challenges, my insecurities, my fears, my defensiveness, my anger, deceit, lust, hatred. The murderous rage that's inside of me. It's all just part of the custom design package. Now that's really hard to accept. My own lot of position in life. There's huge pull. 
to jump Madrigas, right? I'm a no, I want to go much higher, or to not take any responsibility, staying from within my muckle, my actual place, where I am, Ayeka, and working from there is extremely challenging. Adam at first wanted more than Hashem's challenge of don't eat. He had calculations for much greater, much higher levels. And then when he failed, no responsibility, the extremes. Klai Yisrael by Harsinai, the great Nisoyim was, don't go up the mountain, don't jump even higher levels of spirituality. And on the flip side, the ego. So everything can be a challenge. The extremes are a real problem. Either I avoid responsibility or I can go too far into toxic shame and guilt. Then I'm in a totally unhealthy place and I'm not growing properly either. We have to remember Hashem's message to Kain. Your humanness and failings, they're manageable. If you take responsibility and work on straightening yourself out as you are. But if you don't, you do so at your own peril. And that will lead to your destruction and the destruction of those around you. It's brutally hard to admit to myself where am I really? How much I really struggle? How low some of my starting places are? How far away I am from where I see some other people's start. Wow, they're, they're struggling to finish shots. And I'm struggling with these horrific struggles internally. But that's the only thing that we're here to do. I believe these messages are more common in the 12-step and addiction world than the classical therapy one. I, I have suspicion that may be due to the fact that the 12 steps originated from a religious approach. And I have a dark suspicion that might also be why it was never brought fully into the mainstream of psychological treatment. In the addiction framework, I admit my problem fully and my limitations, and I ask God to help me, while also simultaneously I forge ahead and I do every single thing in my power to actually fix up my character. So that there are two crucial elements to taking responsibility. One is I got to know that in truth, my core and essence are actually of the most lofty and divine, turning, as the Svarno said, to the Tzalem Alikim, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu like in eternal, the divine in me. My absolutely pure neshama, the light, the security, the honesty, the truth, the compassion, the goodness, the love that is my essence. And two, also turning outside me to Hashem for help. When I strip away my ego and I turn to the divine both within me and the great and only truly I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then paradoxically, my true self is inconceivably, inconceivably powerful because I'm one with Hashem. But it's really hard to acknowledge and remember Hashem gave me and is sustaining my self-worth issues, my anxieties, my depression, my toxic shame, my complex trauma, my addiction. And from a human vantage point, it's totally unfathomable. Why on earth is this my struggle? How does it make any sense? How am I supposed to deal with it? But Hashem customized our struggles as our role in this world. He could have given me a different role. I could have had Rukhan Kanievsky's challenges. He could cure me in the middle of the night, and I wouldn't wake up today with those challenges. But if I'm alive today, and these are my challenges today, that means it's the role Hashem wants me to have and the place I need to work from. So as Torah Jews, we aren't victims of our circumstances or our humanness or our brokenness. It's actually custom designed for us. It's really hard to wrap our heads around this. What if we could clearly demonstrate that none of the challenges we had we have had anything to do with our parents, our childhood, our school. What if we could do sort of brain mapping and see that these are emotional, psychological, spiritual mechanics, and this is how you were born in the world? Maybe more so, what if we could identify and understood our situation completely 
We understand the mechanics and the workings, but there's no one to blame other than existence or God himself. What if more powerfully, what if Hashem actually told us this is his plan? How would that change our approach? And I believe that's essential to real moon and betafka. Is Hashem is saying, I made this for you. You're not a victim of anything. And it's extraordinarily profound. And while my Torah knowledge is extremely limited, I have not found a single place for victimhood in the Torah. On, on the contrary, the Torah indicates nothing happens to you. It happens for you. If you're alive, there's something you're responsible for that you and the world desperately need. The Torah demands unbelievable responsibility and accountability everywhere, but it's perfectly in accordance with every situation. Even if my bad choices, my bad behavior brought me here, this is the only situation I can work from, I can be by her from. And that's incredibly challenging because we can't fathom this. Rabbi Katz quotes the Lesha. He says that when Hashem gives an assignment, Hashem gives a real challenge to a person, a fundamental element of the challenge is he cannot understand Hashem wants his desire. He can't understand how on earth could you want me to work from here? I feel totally abandoned. I feel lost. I don't see any reason for this. I don't see why on earth I have to struggle this way. That's the essence of Messiah. And I think it's worthwhile to ask ourselves, is it our neshama that isn't okay with the situation Hashem put us in? Does the neshama reject the mission in the world of shouldering maximal responsibility? to bring out good, to bring godliness into this perfectly imperfect world? Or is it the other side of trying not to accept what Hashem is putting in front of it? The ego, the sense of self that's separate and independent from Hashem. That cannot tolerate our internal and external situation. And that part loves victimhood and blame, your parents, yeshiva, culture, environment, your mental health challenges, anything. And it doesn't mean that those things don't radically affect me and my Nikudas of Akira. They absolutely do in the most powerful ways. And we know this from Chazal, we know this from Yisrael. Our experiences completely can alter our path in life. And I believe that's the balance of the Torah, that we don't deny or repress any of that, but we accept it as the situation I'm supposed to work from. And I believe this balance is actually the hallmark of Tishabah. We feel the pain. We don't try to suppress the emotion. We don't say, oh, just move forward. We go into darkness. And if we really read Eicha and the Kinnus well, oh man, the darkness is unfathomable. We experience pain, devastation. We feel it and experience. We even go to the dark human side. We ask unfathomable questions of Hashem. We ask back, Eicha, where were you? How did you do this to us? How could you abandon us? How could you treat us this way? All of this is not as a means of just going down a memory lane of trauma, going into the past, but it's all about going forward, integrating the entirety of the human experience, all the feelings and the thoughts that accompany such hardship, but with an eye on the future. Similarly, accepting maximal responsibility doesn't mean denying or repressing one's emotions or holding people accountable. As Brene Brown says, we often try to fault others for our mistakes because it makes us feel like we're still in control. I'd rather be my fault than no one else's fault. But leaning into discomfort of mistakes is how we learn from them. And here's again what the research shows. Blame is discharging discomfort and pain. And it's 
inversely related to accountability. It's the way we discharge our anger, but we don't deal with our feelings. And again, the Torah does not sanction blame, but absolutely demands accountability for ourselves and holding others accountable. It's very ironic to me. The Pasuk often misused to give other people Musr rather than taking responsibility actually starts. You shall not hate your fellow in your heart, your frustration, your anger, your resentment. That's where the Pasuk is starting. And then it says, Don't hold it in there. Don't be angry and resentful and vengeful. Put it out there. And the Mephoshim learned many of them. This is actually an injunction against harboring negativity and resentment and repressing your feelings. If you have those feelings in your heart, you got to assess, are those correct? And if you're still struggling with them, you have to hold people accountable. You have to say, why did you do such and such thing? But with an open mind and heart, you might hear there was a misunderstanding, a mistake, or accept their apology. And immediately following that is the next posture. That's a warning. What happens if you repress and you don't hold accountable and you just blame, you're just resentful, you're just angry. Then you're going to take out your vengeance. You're going to bear a grudge. But the end is this is a call. Accountability isn't holding you by blaming you. It's accountability so we can rectify a situation we can repair the relationship. And that's the way we get to the but if we don't follow the period advice, we don't accept our part, that resentment builds. And maybe we can't so easily identify our murderous rage inside of us, although it's there. We got to be very careful how easily we you know, are on the phone when somebody wants our attention, when we no longer pay any attention to them. We don't really respond to them. We find all our ways where our resentments and our frustrations and our angers and you know, lush and horror, we say, leaks out because we haven't dealt and taken and held ourselves and them accountable properly. But Hashem offers kind responsibility and uplift, and kind rejects that. He chooses victimhood, blame and resentment. He throws it onto his brother, and he sets upon killing. And then when you go down that path, there's real darkness, because not only does it go towards murderous rage, then you chuck moral responsibility entirely. And when Hashem says, doesn't go fully ayaka. Interesting there, but it's a call. Where is your brother? He responds, I don't know. He chucks all more responsibility. Do I need to be busy with my brother? Where is that? So your resentment, jealousy, you go to murderous feelings, and then you'll act those out, but then you'll even deny any sense of morality. I guess you could go so wrapped up in ego that you could even tell God, am I my brother's keeper? Even when Chaim comes back and he says, God, it's too great for me to bear this thing. The Gemara says there was darkness there. He was still not being straight with the Abishta. But it was sufficient that even though his sin was much greater, that he actually murdered somebody, which is worse than Adam, he didn't get his punishment was less severe because at least there was some acceptance or responsibility. But things are descending, and soon after that, we have the Dara Mabit. So we need to look at the dark side of the villains of the Torah and look inside and say, can we really admit our wrongdoing? Can I just say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? How often do we dislike other people's success? 
How much do we love to hear the downfall of somebody big and successful, the wealthy, the powerful? So I might not murder, but I'll blame, I'll criticize, I'll speak ill, we'll ignore people due to our lack of acceptance. These are real complicated issues. The strongest and healthiest people that I know, it's not that they don't have darkness or challenges. On the contrary, they're aware and integrate their issue, their darkness, they're tapped in to the monster within. But they take responsibility. They turn inwards and upwards. They bring out the divine in them and others. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Zatzal, I believe he encapsulated this very succinctly and beautifully. He says, when something bad happens, there are two responses. Number one, we can complain. Number two, we can do something about it. He says, if we simply complain, if we see ourselves as a victim, the truth is there's good news for being a victim. Everyone has compassion for you. Everyone has Rahmanis. It's comfortable being a victim. The only trouble with being a victim is that you, by defining yourself as such, have put yourself out of any possible way of improving your situation. Because if it isn't your fault, you can't put it right. Somebody else has to. And you therefore hand over your life to somebody else. So the Jewish way is to say, if I see something wrong in the world, let me be the first one to put it right. That's responsibility. And that literally is what responsibility means. God is calling to us, and he called to the first human being in the Garden of Eden. Ayako, where are you? Help me put out the fire. That's the Jewish way, not to see ourselves as victims, even though we have been victims, to see ourselves as responsible agents, working together in conjunction with one another, and with that little voice from Shemayim, can change the world. That's the only way to be. So as Rabbi Sachs is encapsulating, this is really what Tisha B'Av is all about, fully tapping in to the deepest of emotions of our pain, of our frustration, of the hurt, but going to responsibility. I'll jump ahead a bit because the hour is late. It's Tisha B'Av afternoon, we just passed Chatzois. And we spent last few weeks, especially last hours, tapped into pain and devastation. But what's fascinating is when the tragedy was at its worst and the Beit HaMikdash was on fire, which is now, we lighten the Avelis. We're going to stand up, not sit on these low chairs anymore. Why? Because we see the path forward. Hashem took it out on the stone and the wood, but he didn't destroy us, his people. He's rather, he's waiting for us to take on the necessary responsibility. So that it can bring Mashiach and build the third and final basin. I want to end with this story that for me epitomizes what it means to completely embrace all the difficulties and emotions of the situation and yet shoulder responsibility simultaneously. On, on occasion, it's a little difficult for me to say this story, even though I've said it many, many times, and it's a famous one. But certain patients who are barely holding on to their will to live, I share this story. And each time I've shared that with them, we both end up with tears streaming down our faces. It's a story from the, the holy Kloisenberger Rebbe. Kloisenberger Rebbe lost his wife and 10 children during the Holocaust. He had one son that survived, but succumbed to illness in the camps before the Rebbe got to see him. 
This is a story of the first young Kippur in the Feldafing DP camp. The Rebbe had been extremely weak, Arab Yom Kippur. But after Kol Nidre, the Rebbe went to stand next to the open Arn Kodesh. And he began to speak, directing his words to Hashemayim. And the Rebbe cried bitterly and spoke not from the Maxim, but straight from his heart for almost two hours. In a completely unorthodox manner, the Rebbe started to call out the words of Zibu. Ashamu, Bagadnu, we have sinned, we have rebelled. And each word he inflected not as a statement, but as a question. Ashamu, did we sin? Bagadnu, did we rebel? Almost as an accusation, the Rebbe asked, did we really sin? Did we really rebel? Did we really rebel against you, Hashem, and fail to remain faithful? He got to Gazalmu. He said, did we steal? From where do you steal? In Auschwitz, in Moldorf, what's there to steal from anybody? And the Rebbe paused. He said, yes, I am a thief. I'm a gunner. I admit it. One day, he said, I returned from the slave labor. I almost collapsed into my bunk to rest. And my shriveled skin got caught between two boards because there was so that the skin was hanging loose and the sweat had worn down the board so that you get stuck in between. He said, blood streamed out. I was trying to free myself. And when I tried to free myself, I moaned. I thought I did it softly, but it was loud enough that it woke up my fellow prisoner. So yes, I was over Gezel Shane. I stole sleep from an exhausted person. That's the only gzela I committed. And I admit it to you, Asha. The Rebbe continued the words of the Maxim. We spoke slander. Who had enough time for any energy for conversation? We saved it for the SS officer. Hishanu, we caused wickedness. Latsnu, we scorned. How could you make a joke in the camp? Maradnu, we rebelled. We were rebelled. We were dead. The rebel went through each of the Hishanu and then even all of the Alchets, one by one. And he kept repeating, who wrote this master? It doesn't apply to him. And he finally finished, he closed the master. And he asked again, who wrote this? He said, I don't see anywhere. The sins that do apply to us. The sins of having lost our moon and the talking. He says, how do we know we did our various like that? So how many times when we were saying Kriyashma on our wood slides at night, we said, I hope this will be my last hamafil. I can't carry on any longer. I'm too weak. I don't have any reason to carry anymore. There's no end to the suffering. We said subtly, Reboi Shalom, take my neshama. I don't have to repeat once again, Moidaani in the morning, that I'm thankful to you for it. I don't need my neshama. You can keep it. The Rebbe said, how many went to sleep thinking we can't exist another day? All the talking was lost. And then, when the morning came, we once again had to say Moida'ani and thank Hashem for returning our Nasham. So nobody believed they would survive. Yes, he said, we tried to survive, but none of us really believed that we were. So every morning we saw the ones that didn't move. And when we were carrying the dead out, we looked at them with envy. We wish we could be like them. He asked, is that a moon in Hashem? Is that the Tafel? The Rebbe called out, yes, we have sinned. And we must clap our hate. Since we have to clap our hate to get back to the Amunah and Betachem we once had. The Amunah and Betachem went to sleep the last few years in the camp. 
And he says, now that we're free, we beg you be Michael. Forgive all of Christ. Forgive everyone here. Forgive every Jew in the world. Forgive us. I deal with people in the depths of despair. They've lost their moon and the And each of us in our own way, so often, we've lost that moon and the that this is my situation. I can't bear it. I can't bear the challenges facing. We're pulled to victimhood and blame because of the enormity of the sorrow. We can acknowledge the pain as the Rebbe went through every single item in the list, the Shamu We can fully embrace the totality of our humanness and our experiences. And we can find the place where we can accept some responsibility and grow from there. As the Rebbe said, be Michael us, be Michael all of us here, be Michael every Jew in the world, and finally build the Beis Hamikdash, the third one, the final one, that'll last. Thank you very much. I'm here to take a question and answer for anybody who'd like to share your thoughts. Um, just unmute yourself. This may, uh, some, this may take some time to process. Well done. Um, Thanks for sharing the information. Yeah, sure. Um, which is interesting to know, knowing you for a while, it's nice to see, you know, fresh perspectives and new ideas. And it's always a sign of someone who's growing and truthful, who's uh, willing and looking to take the, you know, New directions and, and, and new vistas. I commend you for that, certainly. Um, it was a little, I don't have like a clear formalized question, but you know, I, I couldn't handle the, 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 waiting, the waiting period of people not asking a question yet, so I had to hop in. Um, when Hashem went to Kain, it was his fault. And Obviously, you could pan out what you did at one point to what if Hashem told you it was he who did it. So that's for sure going to always be true. But there's a difference in in like in many ways between someone who experienced severe trauma at the hand of someone and they were not culpable at all. And in the Hanami, that is still from Hashem. But Al-Pizar HaTeva looking at it, they're not culpable in any way. And then other examples of where Hashem turned to all the Mordecaiin and he said, you know, like, what's up? And really, they were culpable at those point in time. And for them to take responsibility from that forward would be healthy and appropriate. So it just seems like I'm not sure that interplay. But I think absolutely. On, on one hand, I, I think in some ways, it's really a call of So I, I think what happens is that we are taking responsibility that's not ours. So it's not, it, it's not, you're, no, no one's faulting the child for having a, had a rough childhood, for being in a, in a traumatized place. That, that, that's the point is that to bear that and to know that and to not deny it at all, but to that, that's totally not mine. That I totally know that even if it was 100% my fault, I tie and I could fix it. Certainly the things that are in my life that are not my fault at all, I'm not going anywhere near that. 
But the flip side is then instead of focusing then on, okay, so it's your fault and that's where I'm going to hone in and I'm going to be busy too much with that. Again, I'm not saying that there's no place for that, especially to understand how, how actions and inactions and words hurt people and how children get hurt is essential to learn how to live. But in terms of my place, it's, that's the Makiris Makayma. What's the place I start from? It might be a very low place. I might start from a very broken place, a very shattered place, a very hurt place, a, a place where it's hard to accept love or give love, all sorts of challenges. But that I know is certainly not mine. But yet, if Hashem woke me up this morning and I say, Rabbi Munasecha, great is your faith in me that with all of this, I can go forward. I have somewhere to take something. What responsibility do I have? And that's why I think the Rebbe story is so poignant. I'm not accepting all the chatoyim on the list. That's not mine. But I find what is mine. Where's my call to responsibility? What's my role in the world now? And that's a very delicate balance. But that idea of if you can rectify something, like Hashem said to Kayan, there's no reason to, still, to be in shame, to be down, to be angry. And then he says, and you could, you could turn towards the divinity in you, and you could turn towards me, and I'm here. I think that's the healthy way out. But again, it's so difficult because words are never able to do justice to people's pain and their suffering. And it's so scary to even talk about this because the fear of maybe you'll hurt one victim, maybe somebody will feel judged or criticized. And that's not the message. The message is that that person's journey to figure that out, but to find a place within them to not judge themselves and beat themselves up for their situation, to accept it wholly, but to accept it as the place for whatever reason, I can't fathom, but that's where Hashem wants me to work from. I hope that that's a little clearer. Yeah. No, I, I think it's an incredible message, an incredible content, and and steps forward, and that that Sforno is, uh, is, is is unbelievable. I, 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 I think there's a tremendous amount of value, and appreciate a lot of what you said. Just even even in the Kavachomer, though, a little bit, like. I, I mean, I know for sure you understand and fully fully support people not feeling responsible for things that aren't theirs, and the people shouldn't feel shame or wrong for being in situations that that you know they they didn't cause. Obviously, you're trying to facilitate them moving forward from that, but if someone didn't do, didn't cause it, then to be able to, it takes a tremendous amount of time or effort sometimes to being able to get to that position of okay, I, I, you know. Let me take a step forward from here. They may not even know it's not their fault. It may have been tremendous, tremendous effort to get to that. You know, if Kain could, could say, okay, fine, let me buckle down and move forward. Hashem can say it, then this is what you, you know you have in front of you. Because he doesn't, it's not very hard. Who else is he going to point to? He knows that it's his fault. But it seems a little bit more challenging to move to that, that, that you know, Macomo and forward if someone's still grappling with or, you know, very fairly, you know, culpability in that situation. I, I think absolutely, I, and I think that that's that becomes the Makaris Makomo to realize that the challenge I have might be that my whole vision is warped. That, that my challenge might be that I turn everything in me, that I deal with toxic shame, that I that I, I take on guilt that's not mine. I feel horrible about myself. You know, that might be that might be now. Why on earth God gave that to me? I'm the foggiest of the How am I supposed to see myself out of here? I don't know. But that's the place where I have to work and, and to identify that because if you go too strongly, right? Okay, just buck up, buddy. There's no empathy. There's no support for the self. That's totally unhealthy. If you go into to spend 
whatever it would be, whatever too much, and that's an individual thing, too much time focused on, you know, where's the cause? What's the, what, what, what's that about? Then you're not focused on where's my place to grow from? What, what's, what's my situation right now? The situation might now be I'm suicidal. I'm addicted to heroin. I'm full of toxic shame and guilt. That might be, and that's, there's nothing more brutal in the human experience than that. It might be that I feel, oh my gosh, I blame myself constantly. That, and that becomes the starting point. That becomes the place, oh, that's the challenge. So maybe the challenge is to stop taking responsibility for things that aren't mine. And that becomes a huge challenge. And that's why I include a lot of the piece about blaming and accountability is, yes, that doesn't mean I just repress. That doesn't mean I continue to be victimized. I hold you accountable. I say lama sisli kakaka, but it's all about moving forward and ending up in that connected to my true self, connected to others and connected to Hashem. Anybody else? Hey, Shreem, it's Ari Rindelheim. Thank you very much. Um, quick question. Maybe this is just uh, my own feelings, but you know, you're talking about uh, Viktor Frankl, the idea of seeing people in the Holocaust, those who were cheerful and still able to give of themselves. And, and there's something that just strikes me as that's an Atiyah also. I mean, that's your inputs, whether it's nat nature, nurture. Like, you know, I see people who have, like, the most difficult lives on paper, and they're much happier than I am. And I don't know if, I don't believe that they're making that choice. I just think that's who they are. I just want to wonder if you could talk to that. How much of that is you know, really something that you're choosing or something that just you have a nature or whatever your inputs are that, that allow you to, to be that person, to be optimistic and happier, to see the good at times versus something that you, they worked on. You know, not every person I see this is someone who's really tremendous, had tremendous self-work. It's just who they are. So, so absolutely. I, I think that's the, that's the incredible power of, of psychology that a lot of time, you know, it, it helps us know that how far away from God's accounting department we have to stay. Because what might look like altruism for somebody is really unhealthiness, either natural or maybe even coming from unhealthy sources. You know, maybe they have a desperate need to do that, not because they really are grappling with the true, but maybe they're afraid to stand up to themselves and say, no, maybe it's actually their greatest weakness. You can't look at somebody on the outside and say, oh, I know what that is. I could touch that up as whether it's nurture, nurture, but I definitely can't touch it up as their behavior. I have no access to their behavior form. What Viktor Frankl was trying, I think, to prove, he said it later, he was trying to fight Freud and many other ideas that were basically all a result of drives and negative ones at that. And he actually held it's a pretty intense claim that had Freud lived through the Holocaust and seen some of that, he would have changed his view. Pretty optimistic view as far as I'm concerned. But um, this idea isn't the idea, oh, we could just look at that person and know that that was his behavior. Maybe, maybe if I care, maybe him doing that chesed, maybe was a mess. Maybe he should have, maybe, maybe he did it at the expense. Really, his wife and children were waiting for that piece of bread and he had to be a big bal chesed. We, we see that sometimes. I have no idea. But there, there was enough of seeing people who dug deep, who we could certainly say that you're not just a product of sex and aggression. You're not just 
a victim of your circumstance. We, we could see people who pulled out of themselves, into themselves and upwards in, in unfathomable ways, despite every, all odds against them. And that's the call. That's why he wrote his book, is that sense that the people who did have a sense of something beyond themselves. And he wasn't a big Haredi guy, but he had a deep sense that if you had a meaning and purpose, not just wrapped up in yourself and your ego, but busy with others and busy with something bigger, that pull was the ultimate of the human experience. And that was greater than all of the negative pulls in the human capacity. And obviously he was surrounded by the worst of the human pull, imagine. For him to formulate those ideas in the camps is absolutely astounding. Anybody else? Yes, are, are you able to, to speak to the issue of like if there's not enough of a sense of self to take that responsibility and say, okay, X, Y, and Z may have happened in the past and like, okay, but this is what I want my life to look like and these are the steps I need to take. But like, if there's not enough of a person there to even recognize that I want something to be different. It's just a constant reliving of the, of the trauma. So absolutely, you know, we, we, we encounter people that, you know, like you're saying that, that the healthy self or, or, or the, the ability to be in tune with that is so, so diminished, you know, and, 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 and that's why, you know, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about aiming low, like, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's why I mentioned the people who maybe their battle is, they, the, the malachim are celebrating if they got out of bed this morning, or maybe they didn't even get out of bed. They're in bed, but they didn't hang themselves, right? So it's, it's that we have no idea, but by, by definition, by being alive, I think from the perspective of the Torah means there's some place where maybe that is, wow, I have no sense of self. I sense that, that there's something way more out there and I'm a fragment, I'm a broken vessel. And you know what? I got to start to glue one piece together. And maybe that's, I, maybe that's, I got, I got to get out of bed. Maybe I got to go to therapy. Maybe I need to learn whatever it might be. It just means that there's some place and it's incredibly difficult to know where that place is. And, and that's where you often can't do it yourself. You can't get yourself out of it. So you need mentors. You need a rep. You need a therapist. You need somebody else, but you have to make sure they're, they're allied with that sense of human capacity to grow from there. Uh, and many times, yeah, that's the actual, when I, when I meant by expanding sort of choices, when you have somebody who comes in as a total fragmented person, they're not a person, they're a shell of a human. You find that like little spark to work from. And that's where you're building, gluing tiny, tiny pieces together until something starts to emerge. And that's just the place of challenge. And that's what's so hard as a person that can look around at all the other people and say, oh, come on, something, I'm a total mess. Everyone else has got it together. They're pulling responsibility. No, that's your responsibility is equal, if not greater, right? That person who might be learning 18 hours a day or running a multi-million dollar business and you're staying away from a knife or from heroin, you might have greater design. That might be a greater challenge. There might be greater simcha and shemayim for you doing that. It has no, I have no business with that. I just have to identify where is the place. If I'm fragmented, where is a place where I can put two pieces together? It's no, it's no fun. It's not easy. It's, it's, 
you know, the call to responsibility is, is, is off the charts, but the flip side is it's, it's, it's the only really liberating thing because it gives you a sense, I have some purpose. I'm here, I could do something about it. Otherwise it's, it's, it's total nihilism. Otherwise it's just suffering, it's just for no purpose. I have a sense that I have no way to fathom whatsoever why this could possibly be minus I What on earth could I have done in this world or previous guilds? Not my business. Why this needs to be my tikkun? Not my business. The only question is, oh, what is there to be mistaken? Oh, I'm a total fragment. I have to become a person. Oh, let me take one tiny step. Where can I do that one step? And I'm not going to beat myself up at key who's at for being a fragment of a person. I'm going to put that all on the account of the Ashamnus that have nothing to do with me. I don't clap al hates for that. I clap al hates only that I, I lost total faith in one and was going to end my life. That's, that's, the, that's why the Rebbe's actions in the camps are, 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 are unfathomable because it's, it takes away any chitzonius, even the machsa. And it goes to the lowest place of, okay, where was there a place that it applies to us? And where do we grow from? Even to people in such a traumatized state. And the people that were there said that before that and afterwards, they never experienced such a speech and message in their lives. And it's hard to imagine what that must have been like. Is your father-in-law in Eretz Yisrael? Here, Tishabov just ended. I have the opportunity to uh, apply your message and your lessons immediately to my vote of after Tishabov. A lot of times we listen to things during Tishabov and we have a whole afternoon. By the time we get to after Tishabov, we kind of forgotten whatever lessons we've learned. So I feel very fortunate that uh, I was able to hear these messages right at the close of Tishabov. And as I shall be able to apply it more consciously. I just wanted to add a thought that Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote about uh, uh, translation would be fate and destiny, which is uh, Yud versus Goral. Goral is kind of what's dealt to us in the fate and how things have emerged pretty much looking to the past. And Yud is our destiny. And he emphasized that really is what we should be looking at in every situation. What is my response? What is my tough kid? What, is, what am I able to do? What is my accountability in any situation? But your expansion and enhancement and development of these thoughts is, is really wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Yes, the, the, for those who, you know, Actually, what my father was mentioning is, is, is Rav Salavechik had, had written fairly extensively in Kolbaidi Doifek and in other places about these concepts. Um, the whole area of the talk that I have to actually cut out, but about Yisurim Boinolav Yifashvish or myself, about how we don't get busy with the, the Goyral aspect. We don't get busy with what happened to us. And, trying to figure out exactly why this was caused, why this was brought about, but only where we can go from here. And there's some really uh, powerful writings uh, of the Rav, and aside from the Hebrew, they're, they're, you know, both his 
his works on, on Tisha B'Av himself and, uh, and his more philosophical ones on, on, on suffering uh, greatly influenced uh, some of these ideas. Um, anybody else? Well, I mean, how do you know where your Bechira is? Meaning, I have to work on this issue which I have, and maybe I should be working much harder. Maybe I'm at fault for that. It's like, how do I know where, if I'm really putting in the right efforts or? <laughs> yeah, okay, so I, I okay. Yeah, then, then, then out comes the really difficult question. Um, uh, to be honest, I, I never, I, I never got a good answer to that, neither for myself or from others that I've asked. The, the best response um, is somewhat spoken about Rabbi Dr. David Gottlieb from Arsamea, a little bit Rabbi Tatz. Um, it, it requires so much of what I talked about in this talk of really accepting your place. And he says that, and then you, 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 there's two components. First of all, you talk about the essential point of, of needing somebody outside of yourself. And that, that's really unbelievable what a real a Rebbe. Part of what we lost in the destruction was the Nevi'im and, and the Chayshim to tell us, no, hey, buddy, this is your Nesayim. I mean, so now we're, we're, we're lost without, without our GPS. Um, but at whatever level a Rebbe is there and somebody outside, a really good friend, the Chaver Toy, the Knei Chaver, the therapist, right? That's where it's like, a, like so going to the gym. You don't know how much weight you should start with, but the coach or the personal trainer, they, they, they take a gauge based on where you're at and they know to be careful not to over push you because you'll tear something, you'll break something, but not to underdevelop you because you won't develop. So that's really one piece, but internally it's similar. So you, you, you sort of push up, you know, gradually, very gingerly against your limits. And if you find, whoa, okay, I just, I just keep failing repeatedly. So instead of saying, I'm a bad guy, you say, oh, that's that's too much. So I, I readjust, right? So you, you gradually, very gradually increase. And if you can muster it, you increase a bit more. So you start low rather than jump high, start low. Like all the Gedolim said, take on little Kabbalah, start inching forward. And if you don't meet with that much resistance, keep inching forward until you bumped up to resistance, but if you get to a place of total resistance where, oh, now, okay, I got to a level where the opponent's way bigger than me. I entered way too, you know, a little too far into the heavyweight ring. Now I'm getting punched and I'm failing miserably. Okay, got to go back down a, a madriga, got to go back down a level. But you can't take that as, oh, a message of like, okay, you're a failure, you're out. Okay, it just means readjust. Like, like you know, when the ways does, okay, recalculating. Okay, so that's your, okay, back out of that ditch. And come back, but the real goal is not to get too quickly into the ditches. To go gradually and to find your place of resistance. That's the best two halakim I have for this. But I've never found a great response. There is some sense. There's Shiva Zatzal used to talk about. And I think it's other places that we have sort of an MS detector, Halasha Yikuba MS, that if you really turn internally, you get some sense from Shemayim, but I've seen so many people with such messed up detectors where they think they're responsible for things they're totally not responsible for, or they're knocked out and feel they have no responsibility that I'm very suspicious of internal detection because again, I, I deal with people whose gauge is broken, you know? So, you know, I do think, but if you can get somebody to very gingerly and gradually without any blame, test the waters, so you're sort of testing the weight limits in the gym, I think that uh, 
you can at least be in your circle. Oh, 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 it just came in. I used to say that. That was a, a famous piece that Dr. Shotzi showed me, his grandfather, called that your job isn't to, with a laser beam, target your exact place. He says, place a circle around your feet, sort of like a target. If you spend way too much energy and time exactly finding your nukuts at a period, you're not there. You have to find a place roughly within a place where you can still function with calm, collection, with strength, with fortitude, with confidence, with balance, with health, and make a target there and work from within that. And don't keep readjusting that because you just get obsessed. You know, say, okay, for the next three months, I'm working on this pool. It's a rough target where I sense I can do that with, with effort, but with calm and balance and noyam. And then, you know, we move from there. Another concept. Who says that? Um, what is the Marmokan? It's not really bluff. Rabbi, what's the? That's amazing. It was it was sheer das. It was sheer das. Beautifully bluff. Very similar. Very similar bluff. When I was when I was hearing when I was hearing your answer now, I was gonna say that I don't know of any like for sure you'll see people that have their gauges terribly off in all different directions. But just the one thing to add is that lachora, just to recalibrate what our expectation of ourselves is that in a situation where so clearly it's so difficult to know the finesse, then that isn't the goal. And then the goal is to try. And with, like you said, a chaver, a therapist, someone else, just with gumption and, and fortitude and just like with, you know, willing to be right and to adjust when not, to just do your best. And that is the goal. 100%. And, and, and really, again, not to get obsessed with that, you know. I remember, wow, this is like, now going back many, many years when I was in Shiva and trying to work myself out somewhat. Um, you know, I remember telling uh, one of my- It worked, friends, by the way, it worked, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's a uh, total mess in progress, Boris, but I appreciate that. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, I remember saying that if I have to spend so much time and energy figuring out whether I need the break, then the, ready, the, the break is, is worth nothing. I'm making myself crazy. And this was where the Shire Dash was very important that, that find a place where you're expending energy, but it's with noyam and with balance. And you have to include that in the equation. It's not about, I'm going to push through and break through. Okay, you could do that for five minutes. That's not a life. That's not long-term growth. Find a place where you're growing, but it can be maintained and it's steady. And it's using healthy drivers. It's using healthy fuel. It's... Um, it's, it's, it's using um, proper methods and motives, not just, you know, trying to force it through. That's not typically a healthy place. Uh, um, somebody pointed out grace to myself. Yes, I, I'm able to do it with grace, but when I say uh, it's a mess in progress, I no longer do that from a place of beating myself, but much less. You know, I'm able to say mess in progress, under construction. That's what I find the human is, you know, that we're all mess in progress. And, 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 and the amazing thing is, and I think it's what has to do with Anova, is as you experience more, you actually see, whoa, what you've missed until that point, how much wisdom there is and how, how much room there is to grow that, that while you're ascending, you also get this sense of humility and humbleness. And, but that has to be from a healthy place, not from a broken place. Absolutely, the grace of themselves. And, and that's the divine in you, that there's a place of absolute light and growth. Uh, that's in there, and it's working along these challenges. Okay. Um, any final questions, comments? 
Okay. As always, it's a, it was a tr tremendous source to be with you. And uh, may we all merit to see the rebuilding the best of mixtures from every your manner. Amen.